0: Good morning. Uh, my name's Tony. I'm going to be reading the scripture passage that Pastor Benjamin's going to be preaching this morning. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. It's on page 771 in the Pew Bibles. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Tony and Jeff. Well, if there are any kids ages four through kindergarten, they can be dismissed back to Kira if they're here and want to go to a Sunday school class during the sermon. Well, you probably noticed that we're not in the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John all summer, and this morning we're in Matthew chapter 16, so what's that about? At the start of the summer, I said that we would get through John chapter 4, and we we did. We we made it through John chapter 4, and I didn't say this then, but I'll say it now, that we're going to pause that series on John all the way until January, what we're going to do now, we'll get us to Advent, then we'll do Advent, and then we'll start again in January. But between now and Advent, we're going to hike some new trails. These trails, I think, will challenge us, but they're going to offer to you breathtaking panoramic vistas of God's redemption that we hardly notice in the Christian life. At least we don't notice them as fully as we ought. This morning we're going to begin a 12-week sermon series on the local church. We're calling the series to draw from words in the passage, I Will Build My Church, God's Anecdote for an Anxious and Apathetic Age. And what this series will be, and why we're doing this series, among all the series that we could possibly do, and how we believe and hope and pray that this series will pour Grace into your life. We'll have to get to that as we go along. But let's go ahead and pray one more time as we begin. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see what can only be seen when you move, when you change things, when you open Our eyes to see the beauty of what you're doing in redemption broadly, but even specifically through your church across this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a line in one of the New Testament letters about the gathering of local churches. That line says, Through the church, the wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's Ephesians 3.10. It's a mouthful and it's words in front of it, words behind it, and we're picking up just a part of it. But, But let me read it again. Through the church... The wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's that's the verse. This line tells us that through that that through small and seemingly insignificant groups of believers in Jesus, what we call local churches or the bride of Christ, God is actually putting on a spectacle not only to the watching world, but to what the author calls rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That phrase about rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, it refers to both good and evil angels, what we might call God's angels and Satan's angels are often called demons. So again, this verse is saying that although we cannot see angels and demons, angels and demons see us. And in seeing the gatherings of the local church, they see the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God to redeem sinners, to redeem the weak, wounded, wayward, and to see the way God is reshaping the fabric of the universe towards grace and godliness. Oh, that we had eyes to see it too. See the church the way she is or at least the way she will be one day. Which is to say the gathering of local churches is not insignificant. Which is to say the gathering of the local church is significant. But this breathtaking and panoramic vista is one, I would say, we hardly notice in the Christian life. We might believe church matters, but we don't often see the bride of Christ in her glory. Our picture of the bride of Christ, the beauty of what God is doing through people who don't deserve his love and could never earn it, that picture to us often just seems as insignificant as other pictures we just scroll past on our phones. Few, if any of us, got up this morning with the awareness that your attendance here is part of God's display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're largely unaware and indifferent to what God is doing in the church. Today, statistics would tell us that the committed churchgoer in America now attends, if they're committed, one to two times a month. Which is to say, regarding how we view the church, we live in a very apathetic age. And for those who do see the beauty of the local church, we can be fearful that her beauty is fading. Maybe the church was great once upon a time, maybe in the first century, or in some other year, in some other generation, maybe right now, but in some other part of the world. But here, well, she's not so great. Or, the church might still be great, but the greatness of the local church currently teeters precariously on a ledge, or what we might call a slippery slope. Things might turn out okay, or they might turn out okay, not turn out okay. It's hard to say, some feel. And surely, there are indeed many obstacles against the church. On the one hand, there are those who see enemies. Enemies of the church in lockdowns and secular agendas and liberal churches that don't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that he's alive today. That's a problem. And then on the other hand, there are churches who wed together prosperity and health and political power. And then there are some churches and other denominations that are just awash in sexual scandal. And not only the future of the church, we have fears, in it, but our country and our schools and our government and race relations and so on and so forth. Which is all to say, we live in a very anxious age. And it's into this context, Jesus says, I will build my church. To read the quote in full, let's look again at Matthew 16, here, verse 13 through 19. I'm going to be reading a couple verses at a time, make it just a quick comment or two, and a couple verses at a time. See what God has to say to us here. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So first Jesus is getting a sense of, okay, what what, what do other people say? Like, what's the word on the street? What's the reputation? What's trending about me? And then he narrows in. Not to what others are saying, but what do the disciples believe? And, and I want you to hear this next question, not as something ancient but but something something near what who who do you say that Jesus is? Verse fifteen and he said to them, "But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, "You are the Christ, the Son of the living God." verse seventeen. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now that phrase Bar just means son. Some translations were write son of Jonah. So that's all that means. Blessed are you, Simon. Continuing, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This line about flesh and blood not revealing this is a way to say that something supernatural has happened to Peter. His eyes have been opened to see the beauty of Jesus in a way that he never could have seen apart from God's working. It's it's what we read about in John's Gospel earlier this summer when Jesus spoke of being born again. Something supernatural happening in a person's life to give them eyes to see. Continuing in 18 and 19, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Was our key phrase. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're going to come back to that verse in week 11. So you're going to have to hang on. I'm going to come back to this same passage again. But I said a few moments ago that it is into our apathetic and anxious age that Jesus makes his promise? How can I say our age? The reason I see this promise speaking to our anxious and apathetic age is because all the same problems we have, in many ways they had to, You may feel like our day is uniquely anxious and apathetic, and perhaps in some ways it is, but it seems to me that the context into which Jesus first spoke has too many parallels with our own day to say we're fully unique. When Jesus began his public ministry, the religious landscape was fractured into many pieces. There were some in the first century who had overlaid their religious hopes with their national hopes to such an extent that they were confusing the two. In other words, they were more religious people who were more pro-government than they were pro-God. They were called zealots. That was a problem. But also in the first century, there were some religious leaders who didn't teach or even believe important Bible doctrines. Doctrines such as The resurrection from the dead, these religious leaders thought the Bible was something they could pick and choose from, largely influenced by cultural fads. They were called the Sadducees. And and I won't go on to list all the other major religious groups, but I will also mention that there were, at least I assume, those who didn't really fit into any of the groups. There were those who really wanted to care about God's people and wanted to be expectant about what and when God might send the Messiah, but, but, but God's timing just felt so slow. And this group of believers that seemed to be sincere, they felt so small and insignificant that I'm sure there were some, perhaps many, who were disillusioned and wondered what the point of even caring was. I'm not sure what we'd call that group. Maybe we'd call them nominal believers. That is, believers in name only. Kind of on the outside. Curious, but indifferent. If these sentiments sound familiar and could map onto our day, it's because they can. The church has often been seemingly teetering on a ledge in different ways every age, is an anxious and apathetic age. Think with me for a moment about our own day. Say over the last 20 years, September 11th this morning, marking a significant anniversary, and think about these last 21 years or so. Specifically, think with me about the last two, or not last two, but two of the last few presidential elections. I'm about to say something political that has n- nothing to do with anything political. There's the disclaimer. Um, but just just think about a couple of these last election campaigns. It, it doesn't take a political scholar to see a certain brilliance behind the campaigns run by President Ra- Barack Obama and President Donald Trump. You You might like one of those presidents better than the other and you might feel strongly that you dislike one of those presidents or maybe both, I don't know. That's not the point of any of this. I, I'm not so much gonna talk about their presidencies but talk about the brilliance of their respective campaigns or at least a part of it. After eight years with the Republican president, George Bush, who just happened to be the son of a n- former president after a long or what was beginning to feel a long war in Iraq and all sorts of other Things that people perceive to be apathetic about our moment, President Obama ran on the promise of change. Things would be different. He would be different. His presidency would be different. Now again, I'm not commenting on whether you like the change he brought. I'm merely saying that's what he promised. And many found that promise of change compelling, just as many found the promise to make America great again compelling. the, The brilliance of that slogan is how it implies in just such a short few words, so much. The promise to make America great again plays into our anxiety and fear. There was a day when America was great, but now her greatness is in decline. And the phrase implies... Now there are enemies that would seek to keep America weak and subordinate and dependent. But with the right leader, the country could move into new levels of greatness. Now again, I'm not saying whether you thought the kind of greatness President Trump wanted to bring or the kind of change President Obama wanted to bring were good things. I'm merely saying that part of the brilliance of their slogans and their campaigns was the way that each campaign scratched itches common to the human experience. We're all looking for leaders to lead us out of our apathy, to lead us out of our anxiety. We're looking for a leader who will bring us into something meaningful, something solid. In Matthew 16 verse 18, we have something of a slogan, except to call it a mere slogan would be to cheapen it considerably. To call, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, a slogan is to reduce that to the level of propaganda, which it's not propaganda. It's a promise from the one who conquered death and now sits on the throne of the universe. The one who promises to build his church is also the one who bends the arc of the universe towards his will. Look again at Peter's confession. Verse 17, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 17. Upon this, Jesus says, he will build his church. Jesus is not saying Peter himself is the rock, even though there's a play on the Greek words, they sound similar. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, there's a footnote, footnote 3, that says the name Peter and rock sound similar. So there's a play on words there, you are Peter, Petra, rock. You only have to read the rest of the passage to see how Peter, or excuse me, how Jesus... Um, in just a moment is saying that Peter is acting like Satan to know that Peter can't be the rock (laughs) in and of himself. Let me read this section. Look at 21, 22, and 23. Look at the exchange that happens next. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 23, but he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Other translations, a stumbling block. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's quite a a change, isn't it? The way Jesus builds his church is through power. But not the kind of power that demands respect and prestige, but the kind of power that enables one to lose their life for something greater. Verse 24, 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If if anyone, which is to say if everyone... that would ever come, anyone would ever come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, essentially as I take up mine. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus builds his church by taking up his cross. To use a phrase from earlier this summer, the cross is messy ministry. Even bloody ministry. The cross is the way, however, to find life. These words of Jesus are more than propaganda because they are part of the great story of redemption. They don't come out of nowhere. In our series about the church, we wanted to set the context for, I mean, it could be a 10 week series and we could have started with sermon number three, but we wanted to set the stage with two sermons to talk about the big story of redemption. And to do it in two very different ways, but similar ways, what we might call the cosmic story of redemption this week, and then next week, for lack of a better word, maybe what we would call the individual story of redemption. That's probably not the best phrase, but it does set the two in contrast, even though they complement each other. And it's into both of these stories that we see the significance of the local church. Now, speaking of the cosmic story of redemption, perhaps if you've been around the church, not just ours, but like the church, Christianity, for a while, you've heard the fourfold designation of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And I was thinking about, okay, how do I tell that cosmic story of redemption to place Jesus' words within it in a way that's helpful to us? And I remembered we've already done that. We've already done that in a, what I thought was a super compelling way. We've just not forgotten about it, just almost none of us remember that, or many of us who are here now maybe even weren't here for that. When we moved into this building four years ago, um, there was something that was on our sanctuary walls that's no longer on our sanctuary walls, there's windows instead, and we couldn't put them up in the same place. But a member of our church at our former building had created these tapestries that she had woven together that told the story of redemption. And we've moved them down into the prayer room now. So if you want to go down, we could all take a little tour down the prayer room. But I guess know we won't fit. There are like eight people fit in there. Uh, so that's not going to work. But I did, in the pews, um, print out and then Kira put them in there. So hopefully in the pew back, there's a handout in there. Uh, you can probably take a couple of them. But basically, they need to stay for the other three ser- two services. Um, but there's a handout and some on the front row as well. And it's got the four pictures that are these tapestries that... This woman named Cindy wove together and created for our church so that each week when we would come, we would see this. And then there was a kind of a plaque, so to speak, that that told the story. And let me just read some of what's on these. On that first one, we have the, what do you notice about that picture? It's Harrisburg, right? So there's an artistic play there. I don't think that's quite what the Garden of Eden looked like. (laughs) But you can see what's happening there. Words read this, the following tapestries tell a story, or perhaps we should say the story, the story on which we are all a part, the story of which we are all a part, the story of beauty and brokenness, the story of ruin and restoration. Once there was a world, it was a good world. In fact, it was very good. God made it that way. We were created for such a world and therefore our hearts continue to long for it. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good, Genesis 131 as you look in the middle, look at that second picture titled The Fall. What do you notice? What changes about the tree happen between the first and second picture? They're broken. And it's hard to see in the printing here, but if you were standing in front of it, you'd see that the colors become more drab, less vibrant. I won't read all of that for the sake of time. We alluded to it or read that passage David did in our confession of sin in the worship service. Then you look at the third picture, redemption. What do you notice? Between, as you open that left picture, right picture, redemption, the third picture, you notice the trees are healed, or, or I should say healing, and the colors, they start to brighten again. And then finally, if you look at the last picture, consummation, what do you notice? Not only do the colors get brighter, but what happens to the mountains if you flip between the pictures on that last page? The mountains and the trees, they get bigger. Not only is all of creation healed, but it's better than it ever was. Let me just go ahead and read that. I know it's in front of you, but I'll read it anyway. For now, the sign that hangs next to it says, we live in the in-between time, a time when sin is defeated, but its effects have not yet to be fully put away. And that makes life hard. But one day, Jesus will come back to this world and establish his eternal kingdom. What a glorious day that will be for his children. It will be a day with no more darkness, no more decay, no more death, only perfected life with God forever. Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more with day that's the big story a cosmic story of redemption and this promise of Jesus to build his church it, it doesn't mean our own church will always thrive especially when understood in terms of the metrics we normally use for church growth more people more dollars Our church won't always be here. Someday community church will be gone. And I don't know what place the American church will have amid the global world. As is already the case, some countries will continue to send Christian missionaries here, not just the reverse, us sending them out there. But if this is the big story of the universe, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, then the promise of Jesus doesn't seem so out of place, so so much like propaganda, but instead it seems the way it should be, as the rock-solid guarantee of a forever future that's really bright. And and I could end by talking, if you'll let me, just, just for a moment about our church, just like, this passage isn't about our church, but in, in a way, it is. See, while I don't know what will happen to community in the next decade, I do think this promise is meant to encourage us. Like, it's not supposed to be merely abstract. Like, well, it might encourage some church out there that seems to need it more than we do. I do think it is in different ways for all churches to cling to. The church that confesses Jesus as Christ is God's anecdote to an anxious and apathetic age. And to be candid, it's God's anecdote to an anxious and apathetic heart of your pastor. I feel so much of what can cause you to be anxious and apathetic. For example, I've been regularly considering the the recent changes to our volunteer pastors we have here. One left our church, two went on sabbatical, One potential elder felt called to another ministry within our church, which praise God for. But all four of those changes happened within six months, from January to June. And in those same six months, we made the decision to resurrect our plan to plant a church in the city. And I say resurrected and we resurrected, but it's not even fully my plan or anyone here necessarily, although there were a few here who were here at the beginning. But this plan originated over 20 years ago in the minds of those who planted this church. The prayerful plan from those who left Hershey Evangelical Free Church was to leapfrog from Hershey to one church closer to the city, then one more church, potentially, Lord willing, if the Lord would be so kind, to get us into the city. It's just taken 25 years. And so people have been praying about this for some time. And related to the church plant, some of us have been working, or will be working, and have been working on fundraising for that. Related to that, Pastor Ben will leave to plant the church. And I would think we'd want to replace his role. (laughs) Don't you? When Pastor leaves, we should probably get another one. And yet his leaving will happen, in a sense, before the church plant happens because we want to free him up to be functioning as a missionary to those people in that community and to do the work necessary to prepare well for that to succeed. What will that new hire look like and who will he be? I, I I don't know. Our leaders are doing a lot of thinking and praying about that. And I, I, I'm i telling you this just so, so that you I, I could be doing the same. I would love for you to be thinking and praying and talking with us about these things. And I'd love to tell you more. But where's the space to do that? Everything, it just feels like it's moving so fast to me. And if it feels that way to me, I'm sure... It feels that way to many of you. I desperately want you to feel involved. But how do we, how do, we do that well? How do we bring you into this process? Because I'm not planning a church. Ben's not planning a church. The members of this church are planning a church. And if we don't plan a church, then we don't plan a church. But as we close, for a moment, I want to put aside community. Community. Put aside community church and all all of that. What about your life? I don't know what this passage means specifically for your marriage, or your career, or your health, or what college you'll attend, or or how your sports team will do this fall. I I don't know any of that. But I do know that Jesus is building his church. And if Jesus is building his church and you're a part of the church, then you have a bright future. If you are a part of his church through faith saying, I'm a sinner and Jesus is my Savior. If you, like Peter, are confessing Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, then your future is bright. And 10,000 years from now, there will be no more crying, And no more tears because the day is coming when the dwelling of God will be among us and we will be His people and He he will be our God and we will see the church as radiant as she really is. But until that day, we have a role to play. Together. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, in the passage we read that Peter confesses what he confesses because his eyes were open to see. Flesh and blood didn't reveal to him, which is his human ingenuity, didn't piece things together. But you did a work in his life to open his eyes. And and that's the work, Lord, we are desperate for you to do among us. To open our eyes to see that through the church, we would see the wisdom of God to redeem a people. From every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that we would play our small part, but play it well. As we make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The beauty of the gospel. As we hail the power of Jesus' name.